Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Daniel chapter 6. Technically, verse 31 in most of our copies of the scripture. We've come to the last chapter of the standard narrative of Daniel. And almost, the, almost certainly um, the well, most well-known chapter in Daniel. And similar to how chapter 5 capped the Babylonian regime and Daniel's ministry within it, so chapter 6 serves as a capstone, a, a bit of a punctuation mark, if you will, to the narrat- narratival unfolding of Daniel's ministry. And we'll want to look at some of those things as we go through the text together, having reached halfway in the, in the book. Once we turn, turn to chapter 7, excuse me, things are going to look very different. Very different. We'll actually go backwards in time to the reign of King Belshazzar, and we're gonna, we will get a, a unseri- an, unseries, an unfolding series of revelation. Uh, but the rev- revelation we'll see actually is inside of Daniel's mind, so to speak, because we are going to see the backstory of his ministry here. We're going to see Daniel's dreams and Daniel's visions, not of kings that he has to interpret, but dreams and visions that Daniel himself has had. And we will get a peek into an unseen realm within which our whole story thus far has been situated. And so from the perspective of ordinary history, the view on the ground, how does the curtain close on Daniel's ministry? After reading that the mighty Babylon has been flicked off the pages of history, we learn that Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. It should not escape our notice that what was hinted at in chapter 1 has become reality, underscoring a major theme of the book. Despite five or six decades now, two kingdoms, three kings and a fourth to come, Daniel is still there. Daniel's still there. The nations rage, the peoples plot in vain. God's people are persecuted, but the righteous man is established. And the kingdom of God is not shaken because there is a God in heaven who rules the kingdoms of men and gives and puts over them whomever he wills. He has the breath of kings in his hand, we learned last week. And nations rise and fall as he sovereignly chooses. And exactly how he has purposed. Key theme of the book of Daniel that we're going to see at the very end of the passage as well. From the outset, we have to confess that Darius, whoever exactly he was in history... The Babylonians don't have him in their history. The Jewish Jews who uh, were, again, fastidious historians have Darius. Most likely he's a vice regent of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great is the one who captured Babylon. He's most likely a vice regent, just like Belshazzar was. He says he replaced Belshazzar. Um, most likely that's what it was. Uh, he, this man is far more likable, and he seems far more reasonable than the kings that have come before him. We see that he has chosen to retain Daniel and to start him, at least it would seem, in a high position. It says it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom the 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them 
three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. The, 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 the loss here presumably is financial. Darius is well aware that in such a large multi-ethnic kingdom that would, would have included a lot of conquered Babylonians, so much so that even a Persian king could is sometimes could be referred to as king of uh, the Babylonians or king of the Chaldeans, uh, he was aware that opportunity abounded for not obeying the commands of a new monarch in general, but also shorting him financially in particular. So he had to come up with a plan. So he has a 120-person satrap team. He's got a three-person oversight board that included Daniel. And we read to no surprise that this Daniel, verse 3, became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was within him. Remember, we heard about this excellent spirit back in chapter 5. It was on the queen mother's lips that Daniel had an excellent spirit spirit that was in him, and it is this excellent spirit that leads him to once again be distinguished in the kingdom. And because of this, the king was prepared, we learned, to make one more strategic move with Daniel. The king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. The whole kingdom. And as you could imagine, Daniel's rise was deeply irritating and frustrating to everyone else. Just put yourself in their shoes for a second. You're telling me that an exile from a conquered regime that was conquered many years ago, in fact, by the regime that we just conquered is telling us what to do? Wait a second. Hold up. Someone taken into an exile decades ago by a regime that we just conquered is now telling us what to do? No, sir. First half of verse 4 clarifies that this is the problem. It's not just speculation. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. That's the idea. That's their problem with him. It's not that they don't like him or he doesn't, you know, he doesn't show up at their social events. It's his position in the kingdom. It's his influence in the kingdom. We can't have this. This can't stand, they say. We have to do something about it collectively. It's kind of like some of you know like playing board games. It's kind of like when you're playing a board game and someone is clearly by far better than everyone else. And you and the person over here who are really, really struggling say, listen, we, I don't want you to win and you don't want me to win, but we're both going to lose if we don't team up against this person who's got all the gold or the whatever. I find myself doing that a lot, actually. Anyways, it's fun. I'm a fun play. Um, that's what this is. None of, the, none of us has the chance of usurping Daniel, but if we get together, uh, we can remove a common enemy, and then we can go back to jockeying for position ourselves. That seems to be the idea. The problem is, as one commentator colorfully puts it, uh, is the miracle that no one talks about in this story. An upright politician. Okay. Uh, he is he is making a joke there, but the problem is Daniel is this politician in a very influential role, and they can't find anything wrong with him. That's the second half of verse four. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. New king, new role, same faithfulness. Same faithfulness. Circumstances change. People change. Same faithfulness. Daniel is a man who knows how to serve in the kingdom of men well 
while keeping his identity rooted in the kingdom of God. They're not incompatible. Daniel is not crying because he has to work for the government and saying, well, you know, there's corruption that goes on here and I can't be tainted by it because I'll be culpable. So in order to be pure, I need to go hide away and pray all day. He serves in, the, in his government role. And he does so faithfully. And he does so not just faithfully, but extremely effectively. So much so that there is nowhere to criticize him for what he's doing. Not to be frustrated, they come up with a very specific plan to conspire against Daniel. They know him to fear Yahweh. They know he has unrelenting faithfulness towards his God. And so what they, what they say is, we've got to come up with something. If we're going to find fault, we have to fabricate a conflict. We have to fabricate a conflict where Daniel is put in a conflict, where, where he's going to have a conflict of interests. He's going to have to choose to serve the king well, or he's have, going to have to church, choose to serve his God well. That's what they say. We shall not find any ground for the complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection, and this is key because we're going to come back to this, with the law of his God. With the law of his God. Just remember that. They're trying to create a conflict with the law of his God. And what is their plan? In verse 6, we read that they came by agreement before the king. The, the, the idea here is, it, the more literal is by a thronging. It was, uh, uh, the point is that they showed up in great numbers with a unified front. They were in agreement, but the idea is there's a whole host of them. It's the whole team here. The high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, Live forever. And then they declare to the king, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. You need to be honored, King Darius. O king, live forever. You need a month of undistracted devotion. You, you, need a, a, you need a month where, where, where people either only worship you or at least you're the only mediator between God and man. And they clarify that this shouldn't be some kind of optional exercise. But as part of hardening the newly poured socio-religious cement of this regime, everyone should have to do this. This is mandatory and refusal to do it should lead to death. And so they urge him to take a next step and to formalize it in a written decree, which both the scripture and history confirms for the Medes and the Persians. At that point, it became irrevocable. It had to be done. And they knew that, which is why they asked for it. They didn't want him to have regret and change his mind. Now, O King, verse 8, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be revoked. And so, no doubt swayed by their insistence, by their great numbers, by their flattery, the king signs the injunction into law. And in doing so, he falls victim to ignoring a principle straight out of Leadership 101, and that is opinions should be weighed and not counted. And the weightiest opinion he could consider is conspicuously absent. And it reads that way in the text. All, all of them, all the high officials of the kingdom 
and the prefects and the satraps, all of them except Daniel, who's not there, of course. So how's it going to play out? Now, verse 10 forms the centerpiece of the whole story. It's not the climax of the story, but it is the centerpiece. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper room open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. In other words, he didn't change anything. Now let's camp out here for a second. There's a lot to unpack in this, in this verse. First thing we learn is that Daniel is not an ignorant violator. He's not someone who didn't get the memo. In, in fact, he, he said when he heard this, when he knew the document was signed, that's when he continued explicitly in these actions. Second thing we learn is why the conspirators chose the plan that they did. Isn't that a funny thing? Why would they choose that plan? We learn that Daniel's spiritual disciplines, particularly his prayer life, were, were well known. They were well established. Remember, everyone was against Daniel here. The whole team. This had been scouted out. This had been scouted out. This was not a random suggestion in a, in a you know, round table. They didn't think that Daniel would alter his habit one bit, and they didn't want him to because if he did, then he would still be up at the top. Their whole plan revolves around them thinking he won't change and then he'll be out of the way. And that's because they knew that his prayer life particularly was a well-known, was an, excuse me, was an established discipline. We also learn from this uh, verse that Daniel's faithfulness in prayer in this particular case was public. Another reason for the plan. His custom was to open his window and, and face Jerusalem, the proper place of the temple, God's holy hill, a heart-stirring aid to his prayer in a foreign land. Because it was public, his defiance would be easily recognizable. Now, some people have tried to use Daniel's act here as this all-encompassing paradigm for Christian situational ethics. Well, if you, if, you're ever, if you ever choose to be more secretive in Christian obedience because of a situation, then you're compromising. Uh, th that is a very poor reading of the text. That's not what the book of Daniel was supposed to be here, okay? People who say that have never talked to someone in an underground church in China, okay? You don't always have to be as conspicuous as in public as you could possibly be with everything. But if it's not offering us a prescription for public Christian practice, some kind of absolute declaration for situational ethics, why does Daniel do this? And it takes us to the heart of what is going on here. Everyone reading this text has to do business with the following question. Why does Daniel do this? Remember, we're going to go back to the law of his God. They tried to pass a decree that conflicted, that conflicted with the law of Daniel's God. But here's the thing. They're a bunch of pagans who don't know the law of Daniel's God. So how did they come up with this? They just discerned from his regular practice that that was the law. But here's the thing. It isn't. There is nowhere in the Torah, there is nowhere in Jewish law that says that someone has to pray facing Jerusalem or three times a day or with the window open. 
And in fact, it's been pointed out by many commentators that the vast majority of Jews in exile definitely were almost certainly not doing that, not praying in this way. This was the particular form Daniel's prayer life took. But it wasn't something mandated by the Torah. So here's the question. Why not just close the window? You see, that would be the best of both worlds. Thou shalt not close the window did not make it into the Ten Commandments. What Daniel could have done is close the window, continue to pray just the same. He would therefore avoid death and he would avoid moral compromise. And yet he doesn't. He does something that is optional, as it were. He passes on a morally permissible out. Why? That is the question of Daniel 10. Some commentators say he's getting in front of a potential idol of safety. Some really good commentators say that. I just have to say, I mean, as you've listened to this narrative so far, does Daniel seem like a guy who's just overly concerned with his safety? Why? What makes you think he's getting in front of a potential idol of safety? That, to me, just seems like a huge reach. I don't buy it. I would suggest the answer the context provides is that Daniel continues on in the exact same way because he discerned wisely and no doubt accurately how it would appear to other how it would appear to others what it would communicate about him and therefore more importantly about his god if he had altered his voluntary personal pattern put yourself in the position of one of the conspirators across the street peeking your head out from behind the corner to kind of feel the weight of this right you're just waiting to see if he would break the law of his god That's what you're waiting for, to see if he would break the law of his God. And let's suppose in the alternate version of Daniel's story, he postpones his prayer or closes the window or does something else in violation of the law of his God. Daniel's conspirators would no doubt be bummed because he was still at the top. But you know what they would also come to believe? He's just like us. He plays the game to stay alive and advance in his role. His ultimate trust isn't in God to deliver, obviously. He can talk all he wants about there being a king in heaven, but he obeys the same king we do. And to Daniel, communicating that about God, even when it was on the basis of a misunderstanding of pagans, that's the key part even when it would have been on the basis of a misunderstanding, a pagan's misunderstanding what the law of God was, having people believe falsehood about him and God was not worth taking a morally permissible out to preserve his life. And so he doesn't. He doesn't do it. He voluntarily bypasses a legitimate way out so that no one will be confused that there is one supreme God in heaven. And so that's what he does. That is exactly what he does. And to their delight, the conspirators see him doing it. 
These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God, just like they expected. And then, like my own kids, because they have a deep and abiding concern for justice, come and report that Daniel did what he was told not to do. They go in there. They came near, said before the king, concerning, Oh, king, did you not sign this injunction? Did you not? And whoever violated it, they're going to get cast into a den of lions. And the king said, yeah, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So he's like, Yeah, of course. Yeah, what do you think? I just forgot that. So he kind of doubles down. And then they say, Gotcha. We got him. We got the evidence. We got the confirmation. Then they deliver it. Then they answer, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now, what is the king, who apparently likes Daniel, was positioned to promote Daniel, what is he going to do? And what we see him do is partially what makes him so much more likable than someone like Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 14 says that when he heard these words, he was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. He thinks, oh, no. Surely there is something that these people haven't thought of. Surely there's a loophole. Surely I can appeal. Surely there's the, 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 the deep magic of Persian Narnia that everyone forgot about. Surely I can tap into something to justify going back on this, because now I see what's happened, and I'm stuck. And so sensing the king's internal angst, softening this great throng, comes before him again, to, to use a Pauline phrase, to simply stir him up by way of reminder. The men came by agreement and said to the king, No, O king, just want to let you know, the law of the Medes and the Persian, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Darius is stuck. There is no path. And so he gives a command to deliver Daniel over to the lions, which apparently was a very real form of the death penalty in Persia, despite sounding and, and of course, being very barbaric. But it's not before his own plea for Daniel's deliverance based on Daniel's faithfulness. Listen to what he says. And the king commanded, verse 16, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, or he answered and said to Daniel, literally, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. May God deliver you from what's about to happen. And then... An older, life-seasoned, brittle-boned, at this point, Daniel, is cast into this den of lions, and he, he notices something. He notices that the light is starting to, to grow dim. The, the light is starting to go out. Why is that? Why is that? It's because a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. His fate is sealed. 
And he is left for the night in utter blackness. With the sounds of growling and paws pacing around him for ambiance in the dark. You don't usually hit that when you see the Sunday school version of like Daniel there in the lion's den. Because there has to be light. Because like a black square isn't a cool picture. But that's what it was like. It's terrifying. What he got put into is, t- is terrifying. Truly. I, I don't think they had candles in there for the lions. Okay. Utter darkness. Great beasts around you. So conflicted and distraught is Darius. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He doesn't even know what to do with himself. Let's look at verse 18. The king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep. Some of you have been here. Some of you have experienced this. Maybe all of us have at one point or another where something's happened or you're awaiting something. You can't sleep. You can't eat. You've got to get to the next step. You've got to get the next update. You've got to do something. Your life, your psychology, all of it is on pause until something happens. He is done. He is undone. And then the sun rises. The sun rises. What will the day hold? What will the day hold? Darius, we're told, races to the den, hoping that it did not become a tomb overnight. It says, then at the break of the day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. They roll back the stone and Darius shouts into the den, the cavern, in a, in a tone of anguish. He says he came near to the den when, where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then there was a pause. We don't know for how long. Then Daniel said to the king, he calls out from the den, O king, live forever. My God, has, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. For the second time in Daniel, we have an unidentified supernatural figure referred to as an angel here that does not keep the righteous from the trial but preserves them in it and brings them out of it. And Daniel gives an explicit reason for this. Actually, he's going to give two. This one is, I was blameless. Why was this angel sent? Why were the mouths of the lions shut? Because I was blameless before God and blameless before you. I have not harmed you. I have not wronged God. Then they bring him up out of the den for inspection. In a series of events that thus far has greatly resembled the account in Daniel 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the furnace, they come out for an inspection as well. And the, kill, the, the, the king is thrilled to see that he's not harmed at all. Verse 23, the, the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in God. And while we wouldn't want to overread, it would be difficult to escape the striking similarity of someone who a few centuries later would also be conspired against, left for dead, fate sealed, 
with a stone and who was delivered because of his righteousness. Have you ever seen a um, have you ever seen a Quentin Tarantino movie? They're known for excessive violence, or so so I hear from people who have seen them. Um, something normal is happening. Maybe even something really good is happening, and then just something gratuitous. If someone's head explodes or something, you're like, what? Like what just happened? Blood is everywhere. It's supposed to be over the top. It's that feel of shock. That is kind of like verse 24. We have this deliverance of Daniel. His faithfulness, he comes out, he's unharmed. And here's what we read the next verse. And the king commanded, and those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Whoa! No opportunity to make amends. No opportunity to repent, acknowledge Daniel's God's swift, brutal judgment for what they did for conspiring against Daniel. And then Darius gives an international benediction and doxology that is, I would say, superior even to Nebuchadnezzar's after his restoration. And you see all of the themes from six chapters in one little section. Listen to this. King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. All of the main themes of the book right here. A a God in heaven who rules and who is sovereign, who has dominion. A kingdom that will never pass away and be destroyed. The one who delivers the faithful. The one who rescues. The one who works signs and who works Wonders, the living God contrasted with the dead gods of the Babylonians and the Persians. All of it is just packed in right here. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, fourth king. Reinforcing the point we made at the beginning of our time together this morning. Kings change. Regimes rise and fall. But the righteous one will stand and stand firm. I want to make two points as we think about application from this text. The first is living for a supreme king in an enduring kingdom. In one sense, as we mentioned... The application of the story, and at one level, the book of Daniel, is contained in the doxology. What makes Daniel Christian scripture instead of reading Jewish mail? You've got to have a theology of how reading the Old Testament isn't just reading Jewish mail. What makes it Christian scripture? Where is the tie? Is that this kingdom that is discussed and in other places is promised to come comes a few hundred years later through an obscure man named Jesus of Nazareth who carries out a ministry of miracles and exorcisms, 
claiming that he is the Son of God and that in him the kingdom of God has come and people should repent. Holds himself to be God. He obeys God perfectly. Is conspired against. He is killed unjustly. He is delivered from death because of his righteousness, raised from the dead. And as a result, the kingdom of God that will last forever forever, has broken into the present. It is already here, although it is not yet consummated. This is the kingdom, verse 26, that will never be destroyed. And, his, and the dominion that shall be to the end. Christ rules. He rules now. He will rule forever. And so, what do you make of that? Well, let me just ask this. I've asked this once already in, in, a, in a sense, and I'll probably ask it again because the theme is going to come back up. Do you understand yourself as a Christian to be more of someone who is a kingdom, excuse me, a citizen of a kingdom that will never pass away with a perfectly just monarch, an even sympathetic monarch, or do you conceive of yourself more as someone who's just had their sins forgiven? Obviously and thankfully, both of those are realities, right? But my experience is that if we don't keep the kingdom at the forefront of our minds, that we are part of a kingdom, our faith tends to become very individualistic. Even our own sanctification comes becomes very very individualistic. It becomes me and God, very vertically. In fact, even our evaluations of God's faithfulness in our life, perhaps, start being shaped by our appraisal of how well He showed up for us. And sometimes we mistake, God is good for circumstances are good. We need to be shaped by a kingdom perspective that says we are part of a larger picture. Something that started before us, something that will endure after us, and something that does not just have an individual dimension where I'm forgiven of sin, which is amazing and is true, but also has a horizontal dimension with brothers and sisters in Christ and a mission to accomplish. A mission to accomplish. Making disciples. In other words, we need perspective. We need to keep a kingdom perspective. The second is this. Faithfulness in a culture of compromise. I would suggest that there are two virtues needed the most in a culture that calls us to compromise. The first need of the moment is wisdom. Because of that, some of the things that I say may ruffle some feathers here. Okay, but at least, that's for a couple of reasons you'll see, but at least hear me out before you throw apples. All right, so let me hear me, just hear me out. We need to be wise in order to maintain holiness in this culture. But Daniel's story is itself a great example of how we need wise and discerning people to help us figure out what compromise is in the culture. See, it's not as simple as saying not compromise just means not sinning. That didn't take any wisdom. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. Because not sinning is hard. But, but that's not particularly difficult to understand. If we're going to take Daniel's example as instructive at all, there is a deeper calculation to be done than mere sin avoidance to represent God well. 
Because remember, Daniel could have closed the window. Wouldn't have been sin. He doesn't do it because there's something more at stake. He didn't want to do something that would misrepresent God. Even though he had the liberty to do so. So, we need wisdom, not just to live holy lives, but we need wisdom to understand what actually counts as compromise. Like, if we're, if we're, ha- if we're going, you know, we have sin, but how do, we, how do we act wisely and just not res- default to our binary, well, sin, not sin? Maybe there's a, a, a deeper story to tell, I'm suggesting. And I'm not saying that there's, no a- there's an action that's like neither one. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in terms of how we engage culture, we should think a little bit more deeply than just that. Certainly think about that, but it seems to be more. It seems to require wisdom to discern, okay, even if this is permissible, should I do it? That requires wisdom. The second, while every Christian has salvific wisdom in the fear of the Lord, not every Christian is equally endowed with wisdom in navigating life. Okay? This drives us to articulate what biblical wisdom really is. And I would say that when you look at what biblical wisdom is, biblical wisdom is not memorizing Proverbs. Biblical wisdom is not life experience. I've known a lot of old fools who have a lot of life experience, and so have you. It's not the ability to even repeat Proverbs. The picture that emerges that wisdom is skillful living in the fear of the Lord. Skillful living, the skill of living well before God in this world. It's a skill. And like any other skill, it can be developed over time. And like any other skill, not everyone has equal amounts of it. Skillful, discerning living is not about intelligence. Don't mistake what I'm saying. It's not about intelligence. It's not about having a premium set of intellectual golf clubs. It's about knowing how to play the game well. Anyone who's been to a golf course has seen people with thousands of dollar clubs who can't even hit the golf ball. I'm not talking about an IQ or even being well educated. That's not what I'm talking about. Wisdom, the skill, the skill of living in God's world, understanding how it works, and living before God skillfully. I would say, as much as everyone would desperately like to believe, including me, that their opinion on certain issues regarding compromise in this culture is as weighty as anyone else's, that is simply not the case. Our opinions, to be very clear, including my own, are often much less weighty in reality than we would like them to be. It is not the case that everyone can make fine distinctions like Daniel. It is not the case that everyone is equally good at evaluating what certain actions communicate to the world. And it's not the case that everyone is equally strong at risk assessment. It's not the case that everyone is equally strong as evaluating what counts as loving and kind versus what is merely feel soft and nice. Why am I pointing all this out? Do you say, Tyler, why are you saying this? It kind of rubs me the wrong way. Like, What are you trying to communicate here? I'm saying that if the need of the moment, one of the two needs of the moment, is wisdom and discernment, it can't be developed overnight, and people have it in different measure, then what are we to do? Are you saying, Tyler, we're just, we're just stuck? No, here it is. Two things. 
There is safety in a multitude of counselors, and he who walks with the wise becomes wise. This is a slow game plan. This is a slow game plan. But guess what? Daniel's game plan in Babylon was a slow one. It's not a quick answer, but I would challenge you to find a pool of people who are skillful at navigating life before God in this culture, whether that's as a mother or a father, a businessman, a businesswoman, someone who engages culture intellectually, someone who engages culture with the arts, whatever it is, people who are skillful in living life in the various spheres, and that's not, that doesn't mean that you find someone who has everything down or everything perfect, but that the person lives skillfully before the Lord. Find a diverse group of those people so you don't get in an echo chamber. You don't just surround yourself with sycophants, yes men and yes women, to tell you what you like because they read all the same books and blogs and whatever. Get around people who know how to engage skillfully with culture and live skillfully in culture in a variety of different ways and say, hey, you know what? You don't have to say it out loud. I want to learn from you. Teach, teach me. I, I just want to watch. I remember in seminary, I'll, never, I'll, I'll, be so, I'll forever be grateful for Ben Merkel, not Moscow Ben Merkel. Some of you know who that is. Other Ben Merkel at Southeastern, Greek scholar. I said to him when I was there, I'm going to try to get in front of you just as much as possible. I'm going to try to be in your office as much as I can. I'm going to try to be in your, your house as much as I can because I just want to watch and I want to learn. And I did. And I still have a long way to go. But that was so formative. He was a wise and skillful practitioner. And I, and I came along one other man who was the same. He who walks with the wise becomes wise. And so perhaps all of us in certain ways and at certain times can pump the brakes on making evaluations and judgment calls on things and say to some wise folks instead, hey, can you help me think and act skillfully in this way or this area? It takes an incredible amount of humility, but if what I've outlined here is true, it is the only path as people seek to grow in wisdom themselves and display the things of God to the culture faithfully. Second courage. Oh, I gave it away. The second virtue is courage. Excuse me. We need wise people to help us understand what courage looks like versus what it feels like. But at the end of the day, faithfulness will require courage, particularly as society encroaches more and more on Christian ethics. And as a result, the church becomes more polarized. But in our case, unlike Daniel's, it's not fear of the government and, and what they're going to do. Here's the thing. It's, it's fear of other people. It's fear of other people and what they're going to think. It's a fear of man that whispers compromises in our ear to hear the applause, the applause of those seated in the front row of the auditorium of our mind. Make sure they clap, it says. Listen to these words. In the past few years, 
And with the most tension in recent memory, the church seems to be stuck in a cultural performance, seeking the adulation of the proper crowd in its pursuit of faithfulness, and yet disagreeing about who makes up the crowd. Some Christians are fearful of performing any personal, professional, or social act that could possibly cause someone sitting in their cheering section to mistake them for being mean-spirited, closed-minded, ignorant, or overly confident about anything they pretend to know as they continue to learn and grow. They would be gutted if someone mistakenly inferred from some action they took that they were insensitive or that they were a Republican. Others are fearful of performing personal, professional, or social acts that could possibly cause someone sitting in their cheering section to mistake them for being wishy-washy, woke, brainwashed, or insecure. They would be gutted to hear someone mistakenly conclude that they didn't have firm positions on critical race theory and education reform or that they liked some Hillsong songs. Both sides holding firm to the same Christ and holding the other in suspicion tend towards the same error as they seek to be faithful in a culture inviting compromise." allowing the approval of others and clear belonging within a particular church subgroup to be prized over the tough business of wisely coming through the realities of being faithful in Babylon. Doing this takes humility and wisdom, but perhaps most of all, it takes courage. For at the end of the day, the one who slowly and carefully determines the shape of faithfulness without generic protocols, broad brushstrokes, or close enoughisms will always incur the risk of hearing, even through deafening silence, we thought we knew you. We thought you were one of us, but we were wrong. And so I would ask you to consider this morning in conjunction with the first point about wisdom. Because courage without wisdom is just foolhardiness. Are there places where you need to honestly say, I'm more afraid of being labeled the wrong thing than I am of suboptimally representing God? I'm more afraid of being labeled the wrong thing than I am of suboptimally representing God by celebrating or speaking out against or clarifying whatever it is in my life, in my conduct, in my speech, whatever. And so, what I want to leave you with is let's let the wise and discerning of Example of Daniel, drive us to Christ for identity, into his body for practical wisdom, and into the resurrection and hope of eternal life in the kingdom of God to ground our courage. That's the way forward. Let's pray. God, we stand in awe of how you have delivered the faithful time and time again. You are a mighty king. And before you, we say, hallelujah. We bow the knee and know that one day every knee will bow. God, we pray that you would help us in this difficult business. That you would help us not to mistake thinking for ourselves with thinking alone by ourselves. That we would use the collective resources that the church has to offer strengths and weaknesses, certain gifts. That you would lead us to examples and dialogue partners so that we could be faithful. And not just so that we avoid sin, but so that we optimally represent you. Help us do the tough task of living wisely. Give us grace, we ask in the name of Christ.